Hello and welcome to Wavemakers, the podcast where we get to know the ocean and water tech and the people behind these blue technologies that are destined to become climate solutions. Hello, I'm Tamara Khan, your navigator through this listening voyage of blue tech on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. First off, a quick reminder. If you listened to last episode, my guest Tracy Wilson, co-founder of Super, spoke about plastic-free July. If you haven't checked out that movement, give the episode a listen. Plastic Free July has millions of people around the world voluntarily making small changes to their lives in order to reduce the amount of plastic that they use. In line with their efforts, I've got another opportunity for you too, to start making small changes in your life that add up to big impact. You can also join my team for the 1% for the Planet Eco Challenge. 1% for the Planet is helping to find bite-sized actions you can take each day to help the planet. I'm a big fan of 1% because they're really showing how our collective action can add up. Email me at tamara at ladybluetech.com for info or check out plasticfreejuly.org or 1%fortheplanet.org. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com advertising. As for today's show, a little background because often the best things don't go as you expect. I recently received a message from a friend and former colleague and executive coach, Dean Wakeham. Dean pointed out to me that a LinkedIn post I had made was trending across LinkedIn. Pretty exciting. That's never happened to me before. The post was me reflecting on the events of OceanGate, a very honest sort of Brene Brown-esque post about my conflicted feelings of the the vessel and the whole event. Personally, I went through a range of emotion related to that tragic voyage. The Titanic has always held a lot of intrigue for me. And I've had the experience of passing over the same route that the ship was taking across the northern Atlantic. 
And you bet my 20-something self was out on the deck in the frigid night air, imagining how that night must have been, and watching carefully for rogue icebergs. Although, side note, thanks to amazing technology, no one really does that these days. We've got satellites, sensors in the ocean, and just well-organized communication between vessels in common areas. So as long as they're playing by the rules, crews on board ships have a pretty good handle on where those icy peaks are, and they can sail confidently in those waters. Anyway, as I'm still a new mom, and also lately, like many others I know, find I have to take breaks from the mainstream media so as not to end up a depressed puddle of useless mush, I wasn't really fully tuned into the news of the Titan sub until, on day two of the search, some friends let me know that this story was unfolding. These friends don't even work in anything blue tech related. And I mentioned that because, as I shared on LinkedIn, that's the angle that I decided to focus on when all was said and done with the Titan sub. My takeaway from the whole debacle was that this event had a profound effect on blue tech and the blue economy. For just a short time, mainstream media and people of all walks of life were paying attention to ocean technology. And this is essentially what my LinkedIn post was about. So... I invited Dean to the show to chat chat about it, maybe even process some of the many thoughts and feelings I was having and he was having. But spoiler alert, our conversation went a completely different route. And I'm kind of glad it did. Because one, has everyone heard enough about OceanGate yet? There's so much more to blue tech that's not upsetting. And two, this may be one of my favorite conversations thus far, as my guest and friend in Dean Wakeham really speaks genuinely and so relatably about his unplanned course to working in blue tech, as well as lessons learned from failures while founding a blue tech company and just how the world works in general. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Dean, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to get to sit down and chat with you. It's been a while, but Please give us a little background on you. We always start here on the show with your origin story and and where you came from and why you care about marine technology. So my origin story, um, I grew up in Orange County in Irvine, California. Um, I went to Irvine High School and I never took biology. And because I never took biology, I wasn't going to be able to graduate from high school um, because I had not taken any life sciences. So I took a course called Oceanology. Now, there's only one other place in the world that I ever heard of oceanology, which is Oceanology International, which you and I went to uh, once a couple years back. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least I went once. You might have gone more than me. But oceanology was basically this ocean study, and it was a lot of um, very interesting ocean-related stuff. And I thought, man, this was really cool stuff. Like, I, I grew up going to the beach. I mean, I was always at the beach. My mom had lived down in Corona Del Mar before um, we bought a house in Irvine. And so my mom was like, every day go to the beach. I went to year round school, you know, so we had only a shorter summer, but then when everybody went back to school, then it was still fall and we were at the beach again. So I spent a lot of my life growing up at the beach, riding waves, um, boogie boarding, body surfing. I surfed for a little while. I stood up once, went across the face of a wave, and then I was done with surfing. I didn't need to do that anymore because I was way, way much harder than uh, than body surfing or, or boogie boarding. So, 
Uh, but anyway, so I'm in this oceanology course and this guy, um, I never forget. It was kind of funny. Um, but he was telling all these kids who are in high school, boys and girls, um, about swimming through a kelp forest. And he said cool. it was a sensual feeling you could ever have. And I was like, whoa, dude, <laughs> it's a little bit much for uh, my professor to be telling me about his sensual feelings of swimming through the kelp forest. But all right, whatever. Um, so anyway, I ended up going to the Naval Academy. I graduated high school. Yeah. Um, and I went to the Naval Academy and I didn't really know what I wanted to major in. My, my goal was to go to the Naval Academy. And so I went and um, I was there and I was like, I think general science seems interesting. I can do, study a lot of different things. And I was talking to this guy um, who'd also grown up in Orange County. He was a couple of years ahead of me. He was like, you just pick a, pick a major because if you fail out of the major, then you can go into general science, but nobody goes right into general science, but just pick something that you think is interesting. I'm like, oh, I did this oceanology course. That was cool. So um, I'm gonna be an oceanography major. So oh, neat. I ended up, and it's one of the few schools that actually have an oceanography degree for undergrad, which is pretty cool. The Naval Academy, that is. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, of course, and it, no better way to kind of make your mark and have a student remember something than bring in that emotion and and those other senses. So obviously, that stuck with you and guided your path. There's a really great podcast that NASA puts together and it's called gravity assist. And it talks to the scientists about what, you know, changed their course into their career that they're in now. And I love hearing about what your, I wish there was an ocean, ocean term for gravity assist. What charted your course? Well, I got to say that, um, you know, I really like the ocean. I really like the study of the ocean and the waves in the ocean. All that kind of stuff is all great. Um, in the Navy, the, the meteorology and oceanography community, which I ended up in after I graduated, um, is way, well, maybe not way more, but very equally, maybe more so focused on meteorology as well. And so that kind of is where I ended up um, just because of being in the Navy and the meteorology and oceanography community. Um, so that I That makes up, a lot of sense. I tried to get directly assessed into the community, but um, I wasn't tall enough to not be, what I say? So I was physically qualified to be a line officer. So I was six, five and seven tenths. I don't know why we went to uh, tenths instead of three quarters or something like that, but whatever, I'm, I was six, five and seven tenths. If I was six, six, I, pretty, I could have been directly assessed into the meteorology and oceanography community, but I had to go do some time on a ship and I was a surface warfare officer originally um, and then got into the meteorology and oceanography field. Um, my first job doing meteorology and oceanography was actually as a tropical cyclone forecaster at the Joint Typhoon Warning Center. So I was forecasting um, a little bit of the local area um, type stuff and around Hawaii um, for a little bit. But then as the Joint Typhoon Warning Center moved into Pearl Harbor from Guam, I was the first Navy guy there. And so I was the first trained forecaster to then forecast tropical cyclones. So all the typhoons, super typhoons, all that kind of stuff in the Western okay. Pacific Indian Ocean was our sort of area of responsibility, Northern and Southern Hemisphere. Amazing. That's a big responsibility. And you're a perfect example of how we talk about like the ocean affects everybody and that connection to the weather piece is is always something that you know everything is connected everyone 
pays attention to the weather. So it's a really good example of how relevant these things are. Um, yep. Is this work something that kind of helped in your founding of your company later? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so I ended up getting out of the Navy in 2001, came to San Diego um, and was a defense contractor. So I worked for a number of different companies, um, started with a small company doing wave forecasting. So we were doing wave and surf forecasting for the Navy. Um, so what I really the started Navy, getting, not for the, not yeah, for the, for the Navy, no, but I did, I did get to know like, um, uh, so I can't think of names cause I'm 50 now. Um, but uh, Sean Collins at surfline.com. Um, so sure. you get to meet him. And I met um, the guy that was doing his wave modeling. Um, he, used a, uh, he was at Scripps at the time. And he, he did a, a model called RefDiff, which was a refraction diffraction model, wave model. Um, but we were running global wave models with the guys up at Fleet Numerical Meteorology and Oceanography Center, a guy named Paul Whitman. Um, and he would actually, we got to the point where he was, we, he would give us wave spectral data. So we only had to run the nearshore models. So we'd run a model called Swan. Um, and then there was a guy that actually worked at the company I worked with named Marshall Earl, who ran, who invented the Navy standard surf model, which was like a one line prediction of what the surf conditions were going to be going into the beach. Um, and then um, we replaced that with another model from Delft Hydraulics in the, in the, uh, the Netherlands and Delft 3D was what we were trying to use to do forecasting. Um, and it was kind of interesting for me because I started off at the Meteorology and Oceanography Center here in San Diego um, as a contractor. So I showed up in my civilian clothes, which was fun. Um, and then all of a sudden, everybody listened to what I said, because when I was a lieutenant in the Navy at Pearl Harbor, like it was like, whatever, lieutenant, you know, you're, you're just another one of the same guys we already got around here. But all of a sudden, like people believed what I had to say. And they were like, asking, I mean, you're out of the Naval Academy and you have all that experience with, with meteorology and weather prediction and wave prediction. Yeah, but I have no more than the other guys that were there, right? Like, and I'm just like a civilian now. So all of a sudden, like being a civilian, when you're full of, when you're in the Navy, like being a civilian means you're like an expert in something, right? Because you're, you're, you're coming in as a quote unquote specialist, even though like the day before I was just the same guy, like I just put on a uniform. So. What an interesting perspective. I don't think I realized... That's, I mean, there's. So you should see this movie called Top Gun, right? So not the new <laughs> one, but the old one. And remember that Charlie was the civilian expert, you know, and, and oh. you know, not just stealing Tom Cruise's heart, but um, also, you know, she was like the expert on all the jets and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Soviet era, you know, weapons and all that kind of stuff. So, she, you know, that's sort of the thing. The military has all these people who are good at war fighting, but then they have other experts who come in to do other things. Dean, I really like that perspective to bring in the fact that, yeah, Charlie was hot, but there was something more to her. And that's so, important. Yeah, so that's me, important. I'm equally hot. So, you know. <laughs> well, you do have the stature. I'll give you that, obviously. Um, so just also to backtrack for a moment, if, if for those who don't know, you mentioned Surfline, and that's yet another example of how every day, you know, the ocean and data that goes into predicting things is useful in San Diego. 
and I think probably along the coast in California altogether, Surfline is like a go-to for surfers to check. You can call a phone number and you can go to the website and make sure you know when the best waves are for you, whether you're a beginner, a kook, or you're a, an advanced surfer. You know where to go and when to go. So it's pretty pretty clutch. Well, let's get back on track. So, That's right. So, um, so founding your own startup using yes. all that experience. So like, but, but, you know, if you keep even going back to like Surfline, that idea of predictive analytics, and there's another guy that I met along the way um, who had a company called Coastal Comms, and Coastal Comms was putting up cameras all around Australia. As a matter of fact, they had, um, as I understand it, a life-saving um, contract to actually put cameras up at every beach in Australia. So the entire coastline of Australia at one point was supposed to be, you know, covered by these cameras wow. and their cameras were actually extracting data out of the video. So it wasn't just the video itself, but it was actually like they were getting periods and wave heights and um, counting number of people on the beach and number of boats going by and doing all of this kind of analytics, like pulling it out of the video, um, which I thought was really actually pretty genius because now you've just got massive amounts of data. And then what they would then do would do predictive analytics and be able to say like, not that it was the 4th of July, but it's just been the 4th of July here. And if you figure like, if you had cameras that were monitoring a beach in the United States, especially like in San Diego, we go to the beach on the 4th of July and all of Arizona and San Diego shows up at the beach. Um, and it's crazy, but just think about being able to manage or understand and then do like, oh, it was cloudy um, that year and there was this many people on the beach. But you can kind of create these analytics that show you what are the causes and drivers of where people are going to be at the beach. And so by doing this monitoring, they were able to then kind of look at all of these different things and be able to say like, hey, you know, that beach over there, there's not a lifeguard there today, but last three, fourth of July, there was six people that kept going out over there and they were jumping off of a cliff into the water. We need to send a boat by there on a more regular basis or something. So it was actually kind of doing resource allocation based on those data sets that they're generating. Um, I love was, that. I can see cool. that even for plastic and waste, like if you know where the spots are that have the most litter that ends up in the ocean, you could address those and prioritize resources to those places. So works on a lot of levels. Yep. And so our, um, so when I started XST, um, we'd had a little project that we got some money from the government to do to actually do like a proof of concept with, um, of looking at waves. And we wanted to be able to predict how big the surf was going to be using these coastal comms cameras. And this was a, at a company before I started my own company. So we looked at the surf, but then a lot of the surf in San Diego, especially in the summertime is generated in the Southern hemisphere. So there's a good time that it takes. It takes a week or two for the surf to traverse the ocean and then show up at the beach in, in Southern California. So we were trying to look at like, well, there's a storm. What did it generate? Oh, it might've had a fetch that was going to shoot waves towards us. Okay. So let's look at that. And then, where are the buoys that we can see where that surf or that swell comes through and do we see it there? And then, and then as you create all these time series, you can kind of put that together and say like, Oh, well in three days, there's going to be six foot waves at, you know, wind and sea beach. Um, and that's the place where people are going to want to be there to be surfing. And if you could do that accurately, then you could, you know, 
the surfers might pay for that, right? Or, but, but think of it for anything. Like it doesn't necessarily matter. That's just one one aspect. You could look at this from all kinds of different things, um, just about how you collect data and then you know relate data to other things. So whatever you need. I know that reminds me of of Walter Monk, who um, is a famous American oceanographer who also worked at Scripps Institution of Oceanography um, and figured out. The, those waves and how they were going to travel across the, the Pacific and yep. helped us at wartime. And yep. um, there's a really great free video on YouTube called Waves Across the Ocean. If anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about Walter Monk's work, he was a phenomenal oceanographer and very well known in this circle. So, um, so, so applying all that data and turning it into knowledge is kind of where your expertise was, huh? Yeah, so we went to, so I ended up getting a contract to the Office of Naval Research um, through Code 30, which was ex Expeditionary Warfare, but they had an Expeditionary Warfare Navy Tactical Cloud um, project topic where I bid, uh, put in a, a proposal for a project. And basically the other piece of a lot of this is uh, numerical weather prediction. So AI is like this huge thing right now and generative AI and people type in a question and the AI like reads a whole bunch of documents and then it sends you back an answer and it's it's pretty cool. And you can ask it five times, we'll give you five different answers, more or less the same theme. But um, in oceanography and meteorology, we have weather prediction capabilities that are based in physics. So when we want to predict what the weather is going to be, we have models that are run on supercomputers and they will look at a global model. You can look at a regional model. You can look at all of this. So this kind of ties back into my wave forecasting when I first got out of the Navy. Um, we were looking at nesting down models to get to higher resolution forecasts for the areas that we were interested in. Um, but there's a, there's a whole bunch of these models and they run them at the Navy runs models, the Air Force runs models, NOAA runs models, the Japanese Meteorological Agency runs models, uh, the UK Met Office runs models. Um, there's just models being run all over the place. Even in San Diego Gas and Electric here in San Diego, they have their own weather model that they run with 187 or so observation stations to help initialize that weather model. And then they're doing fire weather with that, right? So there's just... I mean, uh, it's not just governments, it's industries running weather models and it's available for anybody to run. And these weather we were, models, go ahead. Sorry. We uh, actually, in my past work with electromagnetic surveys, of course, we were on offshore vessels and doing some pretty complicated work from the ship into the ocean. So we were monitoring those. We, we, we actually paid a service for those models mm -hmm. so that we could predict when we'd be able to continue our operations and when we'd have to pause for weather and waves that were too large because they didn't meet our health and safety standards. Sure, exactly right. So, and that, that's the same thing with the military. Like if you're gonna go launch aircraft off of a ship, the weather has to be right. If you're gonna mm -hmm. launch Marines and amphibious vehicles off of a ship, the waves have to be right. Like you can't just go and do it just because you want to. Um, so there's this aspect of planning and resource allocation that goes into all of this stuff, which um, the other problem you run into is every one of those models that exist are, some, are, are sort of purposefully driven and tuned to specific factors. So I'm not saying that NOAA does this. I think NOAA really does try hard to 
make a good model all over the world. But who's going to complain about Noah's model most? Probably the people in the United States. So whether if Noah's model is not predicting well over Mongolia, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of people complaining about how crappy Noah's model is over Mongolia. So whatever Noah's doing, if they're interested in making sure their constituencies are right, they can give up capability in other parts of the world. But the places in the world where Americans are, that, that's where they want to make sure that their stuff's tuned. Similarly, the Navy's global models, they run well over the ocean because guess what? The Navy operates on the ocean. The Air Force models tend to be really good in high resolution places like, I don't know, in the desert, uh, in the Middle East, say, maybe. Um, but everybody's got an interest for where they want their model to be accurate and they may have to give up accuracy in other places. Sure. So the problem then becomes is like, if you just say like, hey, I want to go golfing this week and I just want to know what the weather is, which model should you be using? What, which one should you use? Should you use IBM? Should you use uh, the Weather Channel, which is IBM? Um, should you, you know, use the Navy? Should you use NOAA's? You know, all of these different organizations are running models. So our thing thought was, can we take all of these models and evaluate these models of how well they're doing? over the course of a forecast period. And these forecasts are only for, you know, mostly kind of start falling apart about two weeks out. So we're not doing like climate forecasts. We're not like saying, you know, next year, the weather is going to be whatever and soybeans are going to, you know, have to be harvested early or something like that. We're not doing that. We weren't doing those kind of predictions. We were kind of doing operational predictions to be able to say like, in the next two weeks, you know, you might not want to go put your small boats in the water because the where you're going to be, the waves are going to be too high. That might be a good time to do maintenance on your small boats instead of, you know, trying to drive them around in the big waves and breaking them um, or aviation things or training exercises or whatever. So the idea was if we could get all of these models, evaluate them. And then the other interesting aspect of it was because the Navy is out at a tactical edge, it's hard to get data out to them. And you don't necessarily need to send all the models out to them. You just want to send what they need, right? Because weather in its own right is, or ocean, meteorology and oceanography in its own right is interesting to the people who are running models and doing all that kind of thing. But they don't, but the other people, it affects them, but they don't really care about it, right? Yeah. So, so, so more than, like in your example, you're talking about, you've got this operation that you're planning and trying to get this thing done. Do you really care if the waves are 6.73 feet or 6.24 feet? Probably not. Some modeler might care about that because that's accuracy of his model. But what you really care is, can I do what I want to do? And so our idea, our other idea is trying to get people to say like, like, I, I just want to know, can I do this? I don't want to even know what the meteorological or oceanographic impact is. I just want to know if my operation can proceed. So you were taking models and you weren't necessarily aggregating all these different models to create like a, a super model, excuse me, but um, more assessing which of the models were needed by whom? Well, yeah, I mean, at some level, you know, we only we only had money for about four years um, and I won't say that we did everything to um, probably as best as we could, hence we don't have any more money. But um, the, the other side of that, I think, is that there are people who are doing, um, like they'll, they'll run the same model like 10 times and then they'll aggregate those models together. And we were getting that kind of model as well. But what those would do is they'd perturb their initial conditions to be able to say like, 
but we don't know if this um, initial condition is, you know, there may be a range that we believe it to be accurate in. And so they could run the model with different initial conditions, basically in, within some range, and then they get a different answer back out. And then what they start getting is they're getting probabilities. So the probability that the waves will be 10 feet or greater is 90% in this, in this area. And they could make products like that. So we weren't necessarily doing that. We were more trying to get to a point of like, what is the most accurate model, but we were also including some of those other models, but we also wanted to see what were the 10 different models that they ran to be able to say like, which one of those was more accurate too. Too interesting. And I, if you don't mind, I don't want to gloss over that point you just made about uh, not having any more money in the company. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you feel like things went wrong or what could have been better and made it more sustainable. Well, I think, we have a lot of a lot of founders that listen to the show. So yeah, so I I, I think one thing that I didn't that I never I, I was I grew up in the uh, defense contracting world where the government paid you to do work, right? So I was getting paid to do work, um, and I don't think one the first thing I didn't do well was make sure that the transition path was good, and it's this sort of in the def defense world. They call it the valley of death. Somebody comes up with a good idea, um, but you also have to kind of prep the transition for it as well. And so you can have this good idea, but if you don't have that handoff done to the next guy who's going to take it or keep the funding going, then it's it, it's not going to work out so well. I, my, I guess part of my problem was I went outside of the meteorology and oceanography community, the intelligence community, and that's where my money came from. And I don't think I did a good enough job of trying to make sure that that handoff was going to go down because by the time I showed up and said, Hey guys, we're running out of money. Do you want to take this on? They're like, we have no requirement for that. So, um, okay. part, part of that I think is also a founder, uh, problem, I guess, is that you might think that everybody understands, um, what it is you're doing and sees the value in it and not necessarily everybody always gets it. So you also have to be, I think, very good at articulating why what you're doing is important and what the, what the value is going to be for the constituencies or the stakeholders that are around you. And even for the people that are not necessarily immediately with you, you know, you gotta be able to talk to them too. Um, the other thing I think is, and this is something I probably could have done better although there's a whole nother issue of investment in blue tech, um, which is always a fun topic to talk about as well. But um, I was not necessarily interested in bringing in investors because I just wanted this. I, I, I don't know. I just, it was ego, I guess, on my own part of like, I don't, I'm not really, I never had investors. I never worked for investors and I don't know. It wasn't necessarily something I understood. Well, I think TMA blue tech at the time was trying really hard to find investors um, and help people to put together pitch decks and things like that to be able to go to investors and say, this is why this is important. Um, of course, that was, geez, what's it been, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago now. Um, but it, the, 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 the other side of that now is that I think there's a lot more people who are interested in investing, not necessarily for that 10x return, you know, in three years or more, um, but they are looking at, what is good for the environment? What is good for, you know, what maybe, maybe you're making something that 
is going to have an effect on society or it's going to have an effect on the world or or it's going to be changing but it's not necessarily always about like getting the financial return there there's there's other values out there the eight forms of capital is one of the things that um at seaworthy we often refer to and it's uh that there's other forms of capital and besides financial there's intellectual and natural and cultural and political and and social and individual and yeah so lots of lots of other things to take into account and i know we're trying to really push that in the blue tech industry it's there's a lot of people working on making sure that investment gets a little more forthcoming um, but yeah dean i have to say thank you for like um being so open and honest and and saying bearing your your soul about what you learned there that's so important and so helpful well i, I mean i think it it, it doesn't uh it's not always somebody else's fault, right? There's there's two there's two parts to every relationship, and and the ones that don't work, it's not you know always just because one person or one entity did one thing, right? There, there's there's plenty of of uh, blame to go around, so I, sure. I, I take my share of that blame. But yeah, so so validating your market and set, making sure you have that pipeline and you know what's coming and you know what you're customer base looks like and needs or who might be your next customer base. I mean, well, I think that, you know, my, my experience, even in DOD contracting was a lot of R and D stuff. And so like when you're doing R and D, you're kind of going from like demonstration to demonstration and, and, and you're not necessarily always thinking about like, well, what's the long-term product, you know, how are we going to maintain this? How are we, is it a service or what, what are we going to do? Um, as far as like, how are we going to provide people, you know, updates or how are we going to fix things or whatever? Are we going to get paid to do that every time it's needed? Or are we going to be like, you know, think about like, uh, the, the good example I think is open source versus commercial software and like open source software, you can go and get it for free and you can build something, but to maintain it, you've built this kind of one-off specific thing. Now people are going to have to pay you to maintain it for the longer term, which is cool. And it's a good revenue model to keep, but if they don't want your thing anymore, then it all goes away. Whereas if you got somebody like Microsoft or Esri or some of these big companies that have a license fee, all these people pay this license fee for them. They, they get that stuff and then they're pushing you out updates all the time. And those updates are coming all the time. So they're basically sort of taking the fact that they sold off all these licenses and now they're maintaining their software that way versus like if you're doing something open source you, you got like one customer who's paying for all of it and th that that can be a little bit more challenging even though it might be less expensive up front it might be more expensive in the long run i'm not saying it's always the case because i think depending on what your your thing is a commercial product versus an open source product there, there's different you know values in both of them but it, it just becomes one of those things where you kind of got to understand what your model is going to be so that you have the right people and they understand what is expected so that you're gonna continue on with what you got. That's right, figuring out your model and then filling the team, the gaps in your team. And those are, I mean, these are pearls of wisdom for anyone starting a company because I, it is really hard, especially as a brand, brand new startup, you're just trying to make it in the beginning and sure. you, you to have time to be thinking that far down the line is not easy. So. Well, and I would say, like, you know, when when my company was out of money, um, I'm not a software engineer. Um, I have all kinds of great software engineering ideas, but I always need other people to implement them for me. Um, and so, 
one of the things as that company started to go down um, was I wanted to then have a company where I didn't have to rely on necessarily other people and I want to be able to use my own talents. So that's why I got into management consulting and executive coaching now. Um, But one of the things that I think that I've learned in that journey of getting into that is making sure that you have, uh, at some point you're going to have to get money right? So whether you're doing anything that anybody will pay you to do, that, that, that that's where a lot of small companies kind of start off. Um, but eventually, you kind of got to get to your niche. And your niche has got to be defined. And that's going to be the stuff that you're going to do and the stuff that you're not going to do. Because if you continue just spreading yourself all over the place, trying to do a little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit there, I, I liken it to like putting your finger in the dam, right? Like you're, you're trying to keep all the leaks in and all plugged up and eventually you run out of fingers and toes. Um, and so you, you just gotta, like, I think if you focus and be the best at whatever your niche is, then that seems to be a better way to go. I think that's a really great place to, to kind of wrap up for this episode. Cause I think those are very insightful pieces of advice. And that's usually what we end on uh, in an episode. So, is there anything, any ask you might have of the listeners, Dean? Like maybe, um, are you looking for anything at this point in your business? No, I'm always just looking to help people. I mean, that's my my main business. Whether that's help your company, help your um, help yourself. Um, you want to work on yourself, work on your company. That's what I'm uh, out here for. My company is called TaxShip. Our website's TaxShip.com, and uh, you can reach me there. I'll make sure to link that in the the description, the show description as well. So um, for now, thanks very much, Dean, for being on the show. This was such an interesting conversation. I have a feeling we will have follow-up ones. All right. Sounds good. And someday we'll talk about Ocean Gate. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. Thanks very much to the listeners for tuning in and also to ASPN for producing the show. We'll see you next month on Wavemakers. Makers.